Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, Kate Burdett has information about an annual local event called Caring for the Caregiver. I'll talk with someone from AARP Ohio about small businesses and their struggles to provide retirement plans for their workers. In about 22 minutes, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS10TV, Doug Petcash talks to the mayor of New Albany about the explosive growth of industry in that community. Doug will also look into why Columbus is growing while Cleveland is not and talks with CBS's Face the Nation host, Margaret Brennan, about Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan's run for Speaker of the House. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with Dwayne Casares, CEO of Directions for Youth and Families in Columbus. First up on Columbus Perspective, here's Kate Burdett. The fourth annual Caring for the Caregiver Expo is a free, one-of-a-kind event that allows caregivers, first responders, essential workers, parents, grandparents, and guardians a chance to enjoy pampering services, wellness activities, and all while learning about many community resources and information from healthcare organizations, businesses, and government agencies. That's happening on Saturday, November 4th in Columbus at the Boathouse at Confluence Park. And we are joined today by the founder of the Caring for the Caregiver Expo, Brenda Spencer, also the president of Spencer for Hire Media. Hi, Brenda. Hi, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we first spoke about this event last year, and I know it was well attended and so well received And I'm so excited to talk about this year's event. Yes, yes. I I love you for having me. This event is just growing and growing. It's just overwhelming, blowing my mind, but it's so greatly needed. You're right. It is. And for those who may not know, I gave a brief kind of description in the introduction. But from you, the founder of the event, how do you describe the Caring for the Caregiver Expo? Well, the Caring for the Caregiver Expo is uh, it kicks off National Caregivers Month. And it's a one-day event for caregivers, and that's mothers, fathers, guardians, first responders, essential workers, anybody that's caring for somebody, you know, parents. Um, and it's a day for them to come and be thanked and recognized, uh, to relax, to get tons of information um, from different uh, businesses and organizations that can help them. You know, we have a a growing population of uh, seniors um, and things like that. So it's a day for them to get uh, free lunch, free pampering, free get fit and healthy. You know, everything is free. Wow, that's remarkable. Now, as the founder and the creator of this annual event, tell us a little bit about how you came up with the idea for the expo. Well, you know, my my sister and I, her name is Tanya McDay. She and I took care of our father for 13 years when my mother passed away in 2004. And um, we were both, you know, mothers with teenage children, you know, things like that. My mother got sick. We didn't know um, how sick she was. And she passed away within um, six months of us finding out she was sick. And that left my dad. And they were together for over 50 years. And he was grieving. He was hurting. He was just lost. So it took us about, you know, within the year, I want to say about six months to realize we were going to have to take over his care. 
um, because he had just become really self-destructive, you know, if you know what I mean. Mm. And um, it was really challenging. Thank God I had my sister there to help me. She was hands-on and I was um, uh, the business side of it. I handled all the business side of it, but we did that for 13 years. And uh, he passed away in 2017. And a couple of years after that, you know, because, you know, like you, I've been in the media forever, done special events forever. And I give all glory and honor to God because he gave me the vision for this Caring for the Caregiver Expo, because we learned so much, you know, as adults in um, while we were taking care of him, you know, because, you know, I had to deal with the banks. I had to deal with the the legal. I had to deal with the health care, the Medicaid, the Medicare you know, um, closing down his house. I mean, it was so much, it was overwhelming. And then, you know, my sister was hands-on with him. So, you know, she makes sure she got into his doctor's appointments and, you know, that was tough. You know, when you're dealing with a parent, they still see you as the child. So everything that we went through, I poured into this event because, you know, we, you know, we're dealing with our own grief, you know, of losing our mother. We were had teenage children, so you know, imagine dealing with a teenager at the time. Plus, you know, it was just a lot on us. So, I took everything that we learned and poured it into the caring for the caregiver expo. So, to give people a chance to have one day where they could just come and find out tons of information with banking, with the legal, with the insurances, and then all types of other businesses and companies that have services, home health care, AIDS, all kind of stuff to help them get through their daily life, while also give them a day to sit and hear speakers with our Lunch and Learn sessions, because we have several speakers that will talk on different topics from everything on how not to be scammed with banking to kinship care to Medicaid and Medicare. Um, we're going to do a special topic on men are caregivers too. And then um, our pampering room where they can go in and get uh, massages and reflexology and facials and hand scrubs and manicures. And then our get fit and healthy room where they can do meditation and yoga and aerobics and um line dancing and we also have uh service providers that will do you know your basic healthcare screenings for blood pressure and cholesterol things like that and we have a wonderful lady that comes and does um cpr demonstrations oh wow so we support everything you know into this and it's just growing and growing and growing it surely is. We're talking with Brenda Spencer, the president of Spencer for Hire Media and the creator and founder of the annual Caring for the Caregiver Expo, which is being sponsored this year, among others, by the Franklin County Office on Aging. Can you yeah. tell me a little more? I'm sure that's a very valuable connection. Are are there oh, other my. sponsors and things for the event? Yes, it is wonderful. We can't do this without it. You know, the only way that we're able to provide all of this and do all of this is through our sponsors and our exhibitors and vendors. You know, this is how we you pay for the event. Uh, Franklin County Office on Aging has been absolutely 1000% supportive and our, they are our presenting sponsor again for the second year. They've actually um, been with us since the beginning in 2019. And then of course they up their um, 
involvement and became our presenting sponsor. And we just love them. They, we can't do this without them. Plus the fact that their um, organization fits with what we're doing. They provide so many services that people need in our communities. Like that's what they're there for. They're there to help the community um, seniors and with everything we're doing, everything we talk about with Medicaid and Medicare and kinship care and probate court, and you just name it. They have tons and tons of services that they provide. And, you know, we're lucky to have um, the Central Ohio Area Agency on Aging is our Lunch and Learn sponsor this year, Dedicated Seniors um, Medical Center is, is going to sponsor our pampering room this year. Uh, Chase Bank is coming on board this year as a sponsor. So we, it's, and then all of the exhibitors and vendors, you know, and then we give away tons and tons of prizes. It's just a fun event. It really is. The fourth annual Caring for the Caregiver Expo will be from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. on Saturday, November 4th at the Boathouse at Confluence Park in Columbus. But Brenda, I understand this is not the only expo you are expanding, aren't you? Oh, yes, ma'am. And and that's just the, the grace of God that, you know, this, this shows how much this is really needed with caregivers. You know, uh, we were blessed to have former First Lady Rosalind Carter came on board with us as a as a supporter. She sent us a letter of support and endorsement. And of course that opens the door, you know, we so love her, you know, and then um, as we started putting all the information out there, um, I had people reach out to me across not only the state of Ohio, but throughout the across this country. So we started with Toledo, Ohio, where we will, this year will be our second um, annual Caring for the Caregiver Expo in Toledo, Ohio. That will happen on uh, Saturday, October the 28th this year. So there's always the last Saturday in October. Columbus, we kick off the first Saturday in November. And then we have uh, our inaugural Cleveland, Ohio, Caring for the Caregiver Expo coming up in 2024. So, and then, but people have reached out to me from... Detroit, um, L.A., Texas, Memphis, Kansas City, Baton Rouge, Tampa, all across the country wanting us to bring this expo to their city. And that's what we're planning to do. Remarkable. I I see you going nationwide before we know it. Yes, yes. We're going to try to take care of Ohio first because this is home. Ohio's my home. And we also have the Ohio Sickle Cell and Health Association is our nonprofit um, partner, along with the Central Ohio Alzheimer's Association. So we we've determined we're going to try to do, you know, all the major cities in Ohio first. So we got Columbus covered, Toledo covered, Cleveland. Then we're going to look at Dayton and um Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to look at maybe our first city outside the state of Ohio would probably be Detroit. Wow. Watch, watch for those coming soon. But in the meantime, here in Ohio, the 28th in Toledo, October 28th, that is. And yes. on Saturday, November 4th in Columbus, the Caring for the Caregiver Expo. There are still spots available for people to attend. Brenda, tell us where people can find more information about this. Well, do is go to the website, which is caringforthecaregiverexpo.com. And all the information is there. You'll see my face. You'll see a message from me. There's things that you can click on um, to register. We do ask that everybody register, you know, through the website. 
you know, we try to keep a tallying account, you know, um, of how many people are coming, but all the information is there for anybody that wants to come. It is, I do want to state that it is an, an adult event. So it's, you have to be 18 or over to attend because we don't want any, we love our babies, but we don't want any little babies disturbing the caregivers. You know what I mean? We want them to have a nice, peaceful day. Caregivers deserve a break and yes, to kick off. Nurses, doctors, mm-hmm. fire, policemen, they're all invited to come. This is for this is your event. Mom, dad, grandparents, guardians, this is the day for you. Absolutely. For us to thank you and recognize you. And it's free to attend. Caringforthecaregiverexpo.com is the place to get all of the information and to make your reservation. Yes. Yes, ma'am. I've got tons of great prizes. And I'm just going to give you a real quick hint. My my top prize, my golden ticket prize, is a pair of tickets to the OSU Michigan State football game. Oh, wow. Okay. You got to come. We tell our, our caregivers everything is free. All you have to do is get there. It's free to park, free to get in. Everything is free. Wow. Well, with the announcement of those tickets as a prize, you may have just broken the internet. So, (laughs) well, Brenda, congratulations on everything you've done so far and the best of luck with your event on November 4th. I hope you'll come and join us this year. You got to see it. I do. I do. I wouldn't miss it. Thank you so much for having me on your program. You know, I love you. Oh, well, we love you too. Brenda Spencer with the Caring for the Caregiver Expo happening November 4th in Columbus. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Science is not an opinion. People come before pipelines. It's not too late to act on climate. No one is above the law. At Earth Justice, we hold these beliefs to be self-evident. As a national legal nonprofit fighting for your right to a healthy environment, we are 150-plus lawyers representing clients free of charge because now, more than ever, the Earth needs a good lawyer. No one fights more cases on the environment than Earth Justice. And we win because these are fights we cannot lose. We win for scientists so they can serve at the EPA. We win at the Supreme Court because clean water is for everyone. We win against fossil fuel plants so communities can breathe freely. If you believe what we believe, then help us fight the good fight and help us keep winning by going to earthjustice.org today. That's earthjustice.org. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Amy Milan, who is the Associate State Director of Advocacy and Outreach for AARP Ohio. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. I think we all know what AARP is, but I'm going to let you go ahead and explain it anyway so that maybe we can find out something we don't know about it. 
certainly. So at AARP, we advocate for policies um, for for the 50 plus. And so one of the um, major policy issues that we are always looking at is um, financial resiliency and retirement readiness. And for that reason, AARP earlier this summer commissioned a survey to better understand the needs of Ohio's small business owners when it comes to retirement savings options for their employees. And we wanted to gauge their support for a potential new public-private retirement savings option in our state. It's becoming a bigger and bigger issue because uh, I know that even the federal government is trying to get more businesses involved in making sure that their employees are preparing for retirement. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We know, you know, in Ohio, just as well as the rest of the country, uh, we do face a very big and very real retirement savings crisis. Um, In Ohio in particular, we know that right now, roughly 42% of Ohio's private sector workers, and that's roughly 1.8 million people, do not have access to a retirement savings plan through their regular paycheck at work. Wow. It's really interesting because you can find the gamut at workplaces. Some places, they'll actually contribute on your behalf, even if you're not participating in the program, you know, a 401k or whatever. Others Mm -hmm. obviously will match, but then there are other employers who simply don't have it. And even in companies where they try to get employees involved, they don't all do it. So it, Mm -hmm. it can be a real problem. We found um, as well from our survey, and again, we surveyed um, particularly small business owners in Ohio, and we found that, you know, 79% of them agree that being able to offer a retirement savings option, you know, would help them attract and retain quality employees and stay competitive. Um, Yet nearly 6 in 10 of those small business owners surveyed do not currently offer workers a way to save, um, you know, through their paycheck at work. And there are many reasons for that. You know, our, those surveyed, you know, believe that the conventional retirement savings plans are too costly. Um, you know, almost half think that it'd be too complicated. And, you know, when we ask them about um, how likely they'd be able, they would be to participate in a retirement savings option that we described in the survey, three in four Ohio small business owners said they'd be likely to offer access to their employees if it was available to them. And so three and three quarters said they'd support such an option, which um, could be run similar to a state college 529 savings plan, just in terms of having an option that is state facilitated, privately managed, where the state could develop um, a partnership to create a basic retirement savings option um, like an IRA for the individual employees, where small business owners, um, employers could simply set up a payroll deduction just like they would do for taxes and facilitate transferring that over to um, um, the employee's account. And so workers, again, would be able to choose if and how much they want to contribute. And the reason that... um, being able to save through your paycheck is so important is that our data shows that people are 15 times more likely to save if they can do so through their regular paycheck at work. And again, that's so, that's so important because the savings rate just goes up so dramatically when um, people can do it through their paycheck where it's, it's just it gets sent through on their behalf through their paycheck. Um, so that's why it's so important to try to improve access um, to that type of, you know, to that type of option. Talking with Amy Milam, she's uh, the Associate State Director for AARP Ohio. What are you going to do with this information? Are you contacting lawmakers about this or what? So we, we 
here um, talking with lawmakers about the the retirement crisis in Ohio. But before that, we are actually talking with with stakeholders. We want to talk with those who are most impacted by this, um, and we want to form. We want policymakers to form a task force of stakeholders to develop um, a state public private option that um, at no cost to employers that'll be right for Ohio. So where we are now is we want to make sure that we have the right group of stakeholders together in a dedicated task force so that we can develop the option that will be best for Ohioans to help more Ohioans save for their future. Well, it seems like from uh, right before the pandemic hit to now, when you look at what has happened with housing prices and, you know, just inflation in general, it's Mm -hmm. become more and more uh, obvious and important how uh, big a deal it is to save for the future. It is so important, and, and it you know it's so important, and it's something that um, you know as a state we really need to look at how we can help people help themselves be in a better position for their retirement. Um, that will have huge implications for for the workforce and for the state budget in the future if we can help people be in a better secure position when they reach retirement. Just a couple of minutes to go here with Amy Milam from AARP Ohio. Are you finding older Ohioans a, a, a bit on the despondent side when it comes to inflation and retirement preparation uh, these days? Or I mean, a lot of people left the workforce during the pandemic, and, and I'm hearing that some are regretting that they did it. I mean, certainly it's, um, you know, it's been a difficult situation for, for many with the ever-rising costs of basic necessities, food, gas, um, you know, basic necessities, housing. So um, certainly um, people are feeling are feeling the pain from that. And so, you know, again, we can't stay on, on the path that we're at currently in terms of retirement readiness. Um, we will, we're already, you know, on the, we're already in a retirement savings crisis now, as, as you note, and it's only going to get worse um, if we don't, you know, if we don't have some ways for, um for people to better save for retirement and have an easier, uh, more accessible way to save. You know, again, you know, as I, as I noted, roughly half of households, they're at risk for not being able to maintain their, their living standards in retirement. And so we are looking for um, options that can benefit Ohio's employers, employees, and ultimately um, the state taxpayers as well. Amy, if uh, folks want more information about this, do you have it online somewhere? Yes, we do. Um, particularly if you'd like to see more information on our recent small business survey, I would invite you to visit aarp.org slash survey. Again, aarp.org slash survey. Okay. Amy Milam, she's again the Associate State Director of Advocacy and Outreach for AARP. Thanks so much for your time and the information today. Thank you. Hey, this is Grace Gostet. I'm a singer-songwriter, and like many, I've been traumatized by years of bullying. You're ugly. You're stupid. You're gay. You're worthless. Bullying causes real harm and can result in severe long-term depression, anxiety, addiction, and even self-harm. I created the Black Box Project for anyone who has ever felt different for any reason. Go to theblackboxproject.org to help you take the first step to healing. You are not alone. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Good morning. This week on Face the State, the explosive growth meets the slow decline. It's the competing stories of Ohio's cities. This morning, we're looking into how one once quaint small town is turning into a tech-driven hub. 
when change is coming uh, and it's going from sort of a very rural area to a more dense urban suburban setting that's a lot of change mm -hmm. and so I think we've been trying to be very respectful of folks that are going through that change um, and working with them to understand what the opportunities could be. What makes New Albany so attractive to these major West Coast companies and how the city is preparing itself for thousands of people moving and commuting in. Also this morning, the rise in homelessness in central Ohio. It's partly because of the increase in people moving here and driving up the cost of living. We speak to an organization working to combat the problem. And this morning, we're also facing the nation. I'm joined by moderator Margaret Brennan from the CBS Washington, D.C. Bureau. What she's looking at in Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan's bid to be the next House Speaker. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Doug Petcash from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Good morning and thank you for joining me on this Sunday. I'm Doug Petcash. This week we're exploring the rapid growth and the steady decline of communities across the state. We've seen the impacts new businesses are having on our part of the state. And while Columbus grows, other cities aren't so lucky. We're starting our focus this morning on New Albany. The quiet Columbus suburb isn't so quiet anymore. The city is adding thousands and thousands of jobs. Amazon is the most recent company investing in the city. They're spending nearly $4 billion on new buildings to house web servers. There's also Intel, which will be a major employer up the road. Meta and Google are expanding their own data centers as well. A vitamin brand is adding a new plant. Same for a biomanufacturing company. All of this is creating a buzz around town, mainly from all the construction happening. I recently sat down with the mayor of this growing community for a conversation about how New Albany is preparing. I started by asking him what the growth means for the city. What does all this business growth mean for New Albany? Well, first of all, we're just uh, super excited to have these great business partners coming into our community. That's not only going to have an impact in New Albany, but on the entire region and, frankly, the state of Ohio. You know, the Intel project really brought to light the spirit of collaboration that is Columbus. Uh, the region is very well known for that. And certainly the successes we've had in New Albany are because of our ability to collaborate. I was going to ask that. You know, uh, how has all of this business investment uh, happened in, in recent years? And again, I think it's all a team effort. Uh, you look at the local level, we have an incredible staff at the city of New Albany, a very professional, uh, very uh, well-respected in the industry. And we have a track record record of success, not only in bringing in those businesses, but be able to deliver on what we promised. But then you look a little bit broader. Uh, the city of Columbus is a tremendous partner uh, mm -hmm. with the city of New Albany. Licking County has really stepped up over the last couple of years to provide assistance. And then you look a little bit more broader than that. Jobs Ohio, a very unique uh, you know, animal, so to speak, in, in Ohio for economic development. And of course, the state of Ohio has, has done a lot to help bring in these great business partners. When you think about the roots of New Albany as a a rural mm -hmm. mill town and, and what it is today. Um, has it taken 
years to build up that reputation as a business-friendly community to attract this type of investment? Absolutely. Uh, and as you point out, I mean, New Albany is, a you know, like a lot of other towns uh, in Ohio, started out as a rural agricultural center. Uh, for years, it was just a stop sign between Granville and Columbus. Uh, and then, you know, a developer came to town and uh, had some other plans and really built, you know, sort of from the inside out. Mm-hmm. And it was predominantly a residential area at, at its beginning. But as the city started to grow and wanted to diversify our revenue streams, we started to attract those business partners. And again, it was sort of that strategic planning mm-hmm. and really putting together an atmosphere that would attract those business businesses into our community, and then just really the forward-thinking investment from our city council and city staff to make that infrastructure uh, available right from the beginning and then attract the businesses. So you have that. That was my next question, too, is how is the city now preparing for all this growth? Well, uh, you know, we, we've chased a lot of really big projects um, over the years. Uh, you look at uh, our success with uh, Facebook and Meta, Amazon Web Services, Google. You mentioned Amgen, Farmervite, other really great partners. Uh, but the Intel project, I think, really sort of, uh, you know, turned up the pace of development. Uh, so the city is really engaged on putting together that infrastructure, the road networks, the sewer and water, uh, all the things that are going to need to circulate not only folks to the site, uh, but the construction that's going to follow. A lot of people will be moving here, too. So how Absolutely. can the city play a role in making sure there is, first of all, enough housing and then also enough affordable housing? Yeah, and that's certainly going to be the challenge for our entire region. Uh, and I give a lot of credit to a lot of the other leaders in central Ohio. We've been talking about housing workforce, transportation. We've been discussing those issues for a a long period of time. And there's plans in place. But certainly with a project like Intel coming, all of that's going to be accelerated. Mm -hmm. Uh, But housing across all spectrums is going to be needed in the region. We're going to have a pretty massive influx of people over the next, you know, five to ten years. And housing is going to have to be something that is a priority for every community. And And obviously they won't all be living right around New Orleans. Correct. I mean, we're, we're actually a fairly small town. You know, we're 12 to 14,000 yeah. residents. Um, and so, you know, we're not going to be able to influx 100,000 people. It's just not going to be able to all be in New Albany. But regionally, we'll be able to, you know, come together. Each community is going to have their own opportunity is how, how they embrace this, you know, this, yeah. this new partner that's coming to town mm-hmm. and the growth that comes with it. Well, speaking of embracing it, um, you know, what do you tell residents who maybe have been there a long time, who like that rural atmosphere uh, and may may not like the pace of the growth. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, I, I personally, you know, I'm, I'm a bike rider. I love to get out there and ride my bike and, and get out in rural Ohio. It's it's, it's absolutely beautiful. And uh, I have a high degree of respect for folks that, that farm for a living. It's, it's hard work. And, you know, there's when I close my eyes and think of the state of Ohio, that's what I picture is, you know, is the farm and agricultural communities that we have. And so when, when change is coming uh, and it's going from sort of a very rural area to a more dense urban suburban setting that's a lot of change Mm -hmm. and so i think we've been trying to be very respectful of folks that are going through that change um, and working with them to understand what the opportunities could be and the way i've tried to describe it to folks at the end of the day these projects are really about the future for our kids Uh, to have those young people that get educated here in Ohio. We spend a lot of money educating our young folks, only to see them leave and go to, you know, the East Coast or the West Coast for jobs. I want them to stay here in Ohio. I want those Buckeyes that have left to come home. For me, it's all about the employment opportunity for the future. And Intel's factory is uh, scheduled to open sometime in 2025. Correct. Let's take the longer view now. What do you see for New Albany and the surrounding area after that? 
So, you know, it's 3,000 jobs that uh, Intel has committed for that first phase of the project. Of course, with the CHIPS Act, uh, we're hoping that there'll be a further commitment uh, of Intel looking into the future. Uh, to your point, you know, this is really a 30 to 50 year horizon that we're going to be looking at for this entire project mm-hmm. to be built out at full capacity. Uh, generally, Intel doesn't buy land that they're just going to, you know, look at. They're actually going to use it for development. But it's all the other uh, uh, parts of that project, I think they're going to have the larger impact on the region. The suppliers, the construction trades, uh, the influx of talent that is, is going to come into the region. And it's that play that I think our other partners in the region are going to benefit from. You know, what suppliers can they attract to their community? What employment centers can they create mm-hmm. to take advantage of this opportunity? So continued growth. Continued growth. And again, it's it's a 30 to 50 year horizon. But I think the thing that, uh, you know, a lot of folks have really started to embrace in, and, and acknowledge is that, you know, Ohio, we have such a great and rich history of making things with our hands. And we have great, you know, we put the first man on the moon. You know, we developed flight, the light bulb, all these great inventions, you know, Ohio first in, in any industry. And so to be able to transfer from sort of that Rust Belt mentality mm-hmm. uh, of, of manufacturing to this new high-tech environment, I think is what the future, you know, the future is very bright for Ohio, and I think this is going to be the project that really drives who we are uh, 50 to, you know, 100 years from now. New Albany is part of the reason we've seen the increases in population in the Columbus metro area. The population has been growing here for the last two decades. 18% of the state's population lives in Columbus or its metro area. This part of the state is really the only area that's growing in population. In the last 20 years, Ohio has had a population growth of 3%. However, when you take Columbus out of that equation, the state actually has had a net loss, some 100,000 people or 1%. Cleveland is in somewhat of a decline, but it's not alone. Once vibrant communities are suffering from poverty, crime, depopulation, and job losses. This morning, we're taking a few moments to explore the differences between places like Columbus and Cleveland. Here to speak about the decline happening in many Midwestern communities is author and Cleveland State University professor, Dr. Stephanie Ryberg-Webster. Stephanie, thank you so much for your time this morning. Absolutely, and great to be here. Well, first of all, I want to start with uh, the differences between Columbus and our neighbors to the north in Cleveland. What makes these cities so different? So I think there's a number of things. History, of course. Um, Cleveland, you know, boomed uh, more than a century ago during the peak of industrialization as a city sort of centered around heavy industries, Um, rapid um, immigration growth. Of course, its positioning on Lake Erie and the Cuyahoga River kind of facilitated that in an era before automobile use was um, kind of the dominant mode of transportation. Um, In the present day, there are also sort of ongoing differences between these cities. Of course, you know, Columbus is growing and Cleveland is uh, still in decline, although a much slower pace of decline than in the past, kind of a a stabilization point, I think. Um, And, you know, um, one of the, the sort of impacts of history and how these cities developed over time is that Columbus still physically grows, like the actual geographic boundaries of the city can expand outward and capture some of the new growth that's happening in the region, whereas Cleveland um, and even a city like Cincinnati cannot. Um, They're landlocked cities completely surrounded by other um, incorporated communities, and so there's very little opportunity for physical growth um, for a city like Cleveland. I was going to say, so is that the main factor, basically, in why Columbus is growing and those two aren't? I mean, you always hear that cities can build up. 
Right, right. So yes, of course, a city like Cleveland could build up and there is land here from, you know, decades and decades of deindustrialization and population loss um, that has resulted in things like, you know, too much housing and vacant land. So there are those opportunities. But I think these um, sort of economic trends um, become kind of catalytic. So you have a lot of recent investment um, in cities like Columbus and the high-tech sector and and high-tech industry, and those things sort of spiral off of each other. And and so Columbus kind of benefits from that at this point, whereas, uh, of course, it's happening in Cleveland. It's not that there's no growth here or no investment. It's just sort of at a different pace and different scale in the 21st century right now. What does a city like Columbus need to do to sustain growth we're experiencing? Yeah, this is a really great question. I think, you know, um, if you take kind of a long arc view of history, these things ebb and flow over time. You know, I think to sustain growth, uh, uh, a region really has to be in tune with things like infrastructure development and how transportation networks um, uh, sort of can can accommodate that the, those numbers of people things like housing affordability, um, because if those things start to get too high, right, if, if housing affordability becomes untenable for a lot of people, you, you can have kind of negative effects over time. Dr. Stephanie Ryberg-Webster, thank you so much for your perspective this morning. Absolutely. Have a great day. Well, there's much more ahead this morning. We look into a very real problem in Columbus, the growing number of people experiencing homelessness, the people on the streets who are helping those people every day, and the concerns this Sunday for how all the expansion we've talked about may only go into making matters worse. Also ahead, moderator of Face the Nation, Margaret Brennan, joins me. We'll talk about her role at CBS News and a recent major interview you've seen on the program, plus her perspective on the race for Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. When you're high, you feel different. You think different, you talk different, you draw different, you listen to music different, but you probably knew that. Problem is, you also drive different and not in a good way. That's why driving high is illegal everywhere. So if you're high, just don't drive. Make a plan to get a sober ride. Because if you feel different, you drive different. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Doug Petcash, courtesy of 10TV. Welcome back to Face the State. The future of Ohio's public school system will be in limbo in court. A judge extended the restraining order, preventing the state from moving forward with a Republican-backed overhaul of K-12 education. The restraining order stops the transition from the Ohio Department of Education to the new Department of Education and Workforce and the transfer of much of the Board of Education's power to the governor's office. However, Governor Mike DeWine says the new department does now exist because of the law the legislature passed creating it. He says he's following the court order by halting work on the transition, though, such as selecting a director for the new department. The restraining order is now in effect through October 20th. Both sides in the case have until the 16th to submit briefs to the court. Well, it's being called an alarming trend this morning. The number of people experiencing homelessness in central Ohio is growing. While Midwestern cities like Columbus have been immune to the major problems on the coasts, it's creating concern for people who work to help these members of our community. In the last year, the number of people experiencing homelessness in Franklin County rose by 22 percent, from 1,900 to more than 2,300. More people now are also not living in shelters, many of them young adults 
and families. Joining me this morning to talk about those rising numbers is Sam Schuler. She is the CEO of the Community Housing Network. Sam, thank you for being here today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So maybe if you could just give us an idea of just how big is the problem of homelessness in Columbus and Franklin County? Well, the, the, the numbers you just showed, the trend of growing by 22 percent, that's the first uh, rise we've seen at that level in over 20 years. So it's a really alarming trend. It's going in the wrong direction. Um, the number of affordable housing units in our community has been declining. Uh, since 2017, we've lost about 38,000 affordable housing units, meaning that for every 100 people who are looking for affordable housing, only 30 houses are available. So uh, it's just an alarming trend that we need to address uh, to turn it around. What, that's one of the contributing factors. What else is playing into it? I think certainly the, the pandemic contributed to it, I think, um, and the economics of uh, where we are right now. The rents have gone up incredibly, I think, in the last couple of years, like 56% for a two-bedroom. So it, people are struggling to afford housing. So you've got a housing shortage. You have the impact of the pandemic. Um, and, and population Yeah, growth. and in the population growth. So all of those factors are, are, are driving this number. Who are the people experiencing homelessness now? Yeah. So you saw definitely more families yeah. uh, and uh, more young adults, and certainly the folks that we serve, people who are experiencing mental health issues. Uh, so, so you have a variety of folks. Sometimes it's just uh, there's an interruption in their income, and, and, and they can't afford their housing. And sometimes it's also that they've got some illnesses that are are contributing to them being unable to maintain their housing. So what is then the mission of the Community Housing Network? What is it that you do? Well, we specifically serve the folks who are experiencing homelessness, who also have some sort of disability, like a mental health or maybe an addiction or trauma-related issues. Uh, we provide what's known as permanent supportive housing. Yeah. So we combine the housing, which obviously brings stability and safety for a person, but we also have uh, um, support services to make sure that the services they need to maintain that housing and recover uh, are, are there and available for With them. With the permanent housing model, is that where you put them in a home so that they know that they have a place to stay at night and that allows them then to focus on finding a job or, you know, other ways that they need to take care of their families. Right. That's exactly right. Most people who end up homeless, homeless who have a mental illness, they had that mental illness uh, at a time they didn't have a good support system. And so they need a good support system. We all do. None of us uh, do well if we're facing a big obstacle and don't have folks around to help us. So if you just house them, that's great. That does help them start to uh, feel safe and foundation and focus on self-care. But then if the support system is also there, they have someone to reach out to to help them with those obstacles that they're facing. That helps them make sure that they recover and that they can maintain their housing and their productive lives over time. And, and people may not know that the Community Housing Network has been around for 35 years now. What does the future hold for your organization? Well, we, we continue to... Um, build more housing because we need it. We have about uh, over 1,500 units now. We've developed around 40 to 100 a year. We just opened a Touchstone Field Place, a 56-unit project. We just broke ground on a, another one, the 44-unit project. So our hope is to keep finding resources and build more housing the, for the folks who need it. And if someone wants to help, just give you a call or go to the website and sign up to volunteer. Or yeah, that'd like be that. great. If they go to chninc.org, they can sign up to get our newsletter, learn more about people who are homeless, and also figure out how to contribute, donate, volunteer. All right. Sam Schuler with the Community Housing Network, thank you so much for being here and giving us an idea of just what the issue is with homelessness here. 
Great. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. A conversation with CBS's Face the Nation moderator, Margaret Brennan, is coming up next. The next disaster is coming. The time to get ready is now. Make a plan. Choose meetup locations and keep a contact list. Build a kit with food and water. Don't forget your pets. Keep extra medicine on hand. Make copies of key documents and keep them somewhere safe. Stay informed, learn about local hazards, and sign up for alerts. Be ready. Learn more at americares.org slash send us in. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. This next segment with Doug Petcash, courtesy of 10TV on Face the State, took place while Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan were both competing for the position of Speaker of the House. Since then, Steve Scalise has dropped out. Jim Jordan remains the top candidate for the position, but still has not been elected to it. Each Sunday, I'm honored to moderate this show directly after Face the Nation and Margaret Brennan. Face the Nation is one of the longest-running news programs on TV. I spoke with moderator of Face the Nation and CBS News Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent Margaret Brennan recently. And off the top, I asked her about Congressman Jim Jordan and his push to be the next House Speaker. Well, it's really a race for 218 votes uh, to get that actual confirmation that Republicans want one of these two men who have put themselves forward so far. There are rumors of other candidates also eyeing a jump into this race. But Ohio's Jim Jordan is describing himself publicly as uh, the person who can best unite the party. And he's using that term unite because there is, frankly, a civil war within the Republican Party right now. We saw that just within the past few days with the ouster of Kevin McCarthy, orchestrated by uh, a group of right-wing Republicans who turned to Democrats for those 218 votes to oust the Speaker from power. So uh, Jordan's describing himself as the man to unite, but that's an interesting choice because it once again seems to refer back to McCarthy's strategy, which was about trying to reach out to those hardliners rather than trying to neutralize uh, the challenge they pose to the moderates who make up the majority of the Republican Party. Uh, rather than neutralize, as Speaker Pelosi did uh, when she was challenged by some of the progressives on, progressives on the left of her party, uh, these Republican candidates are reaching out to the uh, more fringe elements. You had a conversation with former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. That proved to be very consequential. Can you tell us more about that? Well, Speaker McCarthy came on Face the Nation with a victory lap. He was actually uh, viewing himself as having pulled a rabbit out of a hat, and he did. Uh, at the 11th hour, put together a continuing resolution, a short-term deal to avoid a government shutdown. He persuaded the majority of Republicans to vote for it, and he got Democratic votes to keep the government open. What he didn't get uh, was a bill that brought along some of the more conservative members. In fact, 90 Republicans voted against it. And it was a choice rhetorically for Speaker McCarthy to once again try to reach out to those uh, harder line members. He could have said he brokered a bipartisan deal. He could have said that it was the moderates who were in uh, the leading position there and bringing along Democrats. Instead, he chose to attack Democrats, who, by the way, provided the necessary votes to keep the government open. And so he made a choice rhetorically, and it was one that did appear to backfire on him, because right before that vote was held on the motion to 
to vacate the attempt to oust the speaker. Democrats played that interview, and many of them walked away uh, from their caucus meeting emboldened with this idea that McCarthy uh, wasn't reaching out to them, but once again was trying to uh, make them the enemy rather than recognize the civil war within the party. Once again, that was Margaret Brennan from Face the Nation. And thank you for joining me this week for Face the State. I'm Doug Petcash. I'll see you next Sunday at 1130. Have a great rest of your day. That's again Doug Padcash, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS-10TV, from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Dwayne Casares. He's the CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. How are you doing, Dwayne? I'm doing good, Dave. How are you, Mike? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what Directions for Youth and Families is. Uh, we are a nonprofit social service agency uh, offering mental health services we, we, and counseling services. We work in a lot of the school districts. Uh, we have over 50 licensed therapists. All of our work is outreach. We work in homes and schools and in the community. So we don't want transportation or child care to be a barrier to uh, receiving uh, um, uh, therapeutic services. We also have two after-school centers that offer um, leadership development, homework help, computer labs, as well as dance and music and, and um, uh, fitness classes. Uh, just Actually, they, art, art classes, they have all kinds of stuff. It's actually awesome. We are well into October already this year. Unbelievable. And October is a big month for your agency. Yes, it is. It is. On many different fronts. You know, one, uh, uh, surprisingly, we ended up having um, September was the most referrals. We're mostly a mental health agency, and we have more referrals in December, most of them coming from school systems than any um, uh, time in our history. And uh, so that's kind of good because that means that people are actually going to get mental health services that need it. So we appreciate all of that. Uh, but bigger than that, we also have two after school centers uh, one on Ohio Avenue, the other one is in. Uh, Eastland Mall area on Kimberly Parkway, and we've had that property for seven years. We were gifted a building that was 3,800 square feet. Uh, we did open up programming there, an after-school and summer program. We were filled up in two days and have been turning kids and families away uh, since then because we just don't have the capacity because of limited space. Uh, we went on an initiative there to build a new building and actually a whole new model uh, of uh, community uh, uh, restoration. And October 24th, um, after seven years and $10.4 million fundraising, we will be opening up a 24,000 square foot uh, community center. Um, and we have 24 nonprofit partners who will be joining us. So uh, this is huge. This is something that we have really been working on for a long time. And the day's almost here, Dave. I really just can't even believe it. And, and you're not going to like this question, but I'm just kind of curious about it because I've known you now for a long time. And I know that you always want to make this program about the services that you give to the community and not even about your own agency. But I'm going to ask you about you. You... Uh, have spent a lot of time and effort on this. Tell us what you feel about it. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, that, that's, Dave, you know not to ask me questions. Like this. Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you, I purposely didn't go through it for a while when they first 
safest thing to do is to tell a family um, you don't have room for them. And that's going to be the most awesome thing is they're no longer going to have to turn anyone away. We're going to go from serving uh, 60 kids to 400 and be able to serve a thousand families. This is a uh, this is going to be the greatest thing for all of them because they no longer have to say no. They get to say yes um, and and sign them up, and then we start providing them with service. So yeah, it's been a journey. I am uh, uh, I, I really can't believe it's almost here, but it is almost here. And this is uh, again out in the old Eastland Mall area uh, on the east side of Columbus. And one of your goals was to help the community in a big way, but not necessarily change it in every way. That's absolutely right. You know, it, you know, years ago when we kept we started looking at this, we were part of many projects like the Wyland Park Project and many other things. And one of the things that are challenging when you end up trying to help a community go through like a change process is gentrification. Everybody always talks about that. And what ends up happening is when they when areas gentrify, it's typically our clients that we serve that get displaced. And um, the transitional nature of the people that we serve is already high. Um, it, it doesn't serve kids well because it changes environments, it changes schools, it, it changes many different things. So we challenged ourselves that can you have, we started with community transformation, can you have community transformation without gentrification? Um, these aren't words we use anymore. Uh, transformation, actually, we've grown up in the process through these seven years. Uh, we're not trying to transform any community. This isn't about transformation. Actually, I think that word is disrespectful to the people of that community. Um, this is truly about community restoration. Uh, this community, there is no park and rec center. There's no library. Um, and, and we're one of the few social service agencies that have been in that area. It's very difficult when you have a community that's number one in infant mortality and number one in evictions, yet there's not services out there for them to access in order to even have a little bit of hope in changing things. So uh, this really is an issue, I believe, and we believe, of social justice. So we modified all of our language. This was about community restoration. Uh, we do see this as restorative justice. Um, and that really is the approach that we have taken, and that's the language we have used with all of the uh, nonprofit partners that uh, we have engaged to help us uh, restore this community and address issues of social justice. I mean, we, we are primarily a mental health agency, so uh, we have that part covered. We also had, you know, the after-school and summer programming that we have for kids. We had that covered. But what wasn't in our wheelhouse, Dave, is the other things that community needed, like basic needs, like uh, um, to, uh, uh, you know, slow down the eviction process, to um, have food for people, to have a safe environment. To have, but these are all things that other agencies have their hand in. You know, uh, Matt Habash out with the uh, Food Collective, you know, they just bought the Kroger that's out that way. We've been in discussions on how we can unify um, both of our agencies and helping this community be uh, restored. Um, really excited about that. We are, uh, we, we have a, a, a um, community garden that has been built in as a part of this. Uh, we plan on having a farmer's market. Um, we want a safe place for community to come and be able to gather and act like community and be community. Uh, we've built a, a, uh, an amphitheater outdoors. Um, uh, one of our, our partners is the Symphony. They um, have already had a couple concerts out there during COVID. They have material about the mental health benefits of Symphony music. Well, when you, and I believe in that. So when you have that, well then, they should have concerts in toxic stress communities, and they love that idea. So uh, um, they're actually the ones who gave me the idea about 
did all the things. And we started by asking the community what they needed. What are the services that you would like for us to go after? And um, and that this whole process started seven years ago by taking moms from that community to our Ohio Avenue site so they could dream and help us formulate uh, what this center would end up having. And I say moms because 74% of the households out there are single-parent households, and it is uh, um, mostly uh, women who had them. So uh, it's been great. It's It's been great having them a part of it. It supports what we believe is that we got to quit throwing programs at people, and we have to allow people um, to let us know what it is that they need, not us decide for them. Um, so this truly has been a collective process, not only with our partners, but with members of that community. It's great, too, because your agency's role is a little bit complex in the sense that, you know, you're not a governmental agency, you're not connected with law enforcement or those types of things, but you are diving into family issues. Which, yes. which could be a trust issue with people. Well, and that's one of the things, too. It, it, it's uh, it's kind of like when they first came out with the uh, uh, vaccinations during COVID. Uh, you know, we had talked to public health. It's like that. This community, first off, to try to get from where they're at to the fairgrounds to get a, a vaccination. This is early on when the vaccinations first came out. Um, you know how many buses that is? And you try to do that, and there is a pandemic, and you do it with a stroller. Right. This wasn't possible. So we ended up becoming a community uh, vaccination site because we had already worked with uh, uh, Ohio Health to bring out the mobile unit. We couldn't wait to address the infant mortality. So five years ago or six years ago, we contracted with them to come out and and, uh, provide the medical services. They've been doing that since then, and it's full every time they come. Uh, We ended up finding out uh, like a year ago, November, that we were the number one mobile vaccination site um, in the city. And part of that is because our, our staff had built such great trust with members of the community. Um, and this is predominantly a, a, a community of color. Um, so there's many challenges along those types of things because of, of trust factors, particularly with systems. But our, our staff have been so great and so involved with this community, and the community has been very, very supportive of this initiative. So, um, yeah, it's all falling in place. This is uh, going to be a huge celebration for us. It's great. Talking with Dwayne Casares, CEO, Directions for Youth and Families. So, Dwayne, what should people watch for? What's happening when and uh, how can they find out more about it? It is October 24th. We wish we could open up to the whole community, but we have so many RSVPs right now. I can't believe it. We've had so much support from so many people in the community that have pulled through. Um, uh, the initial building was $6.6 million. The pandemic hit. Uh, the cost after the pandemic went up to 10.7 because of supply shortages and labor shortages. Um, that about uh, that sunk my heart for a few days, but then we just had to go back out there and, and raise some money. Uh, and costs ended up being $10.4 million. Uh, that is what we have raised and so grateful to such a giving community that has allowed us uh, to be able to put this forth. Excellent. Dwayne Casares again joining us. Directions for Youth and Families. If folks want more info about your agency, what do they find out? Uh, they can check us out on the web, www.dfyf.org, or they call our intake department, 614-294-2661. All right. Dwayne, congratulations, and thanks for talking to us again today. Appreciate it, Dave. Thanks, Mike. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.